that's what people asked me. They were like, what if you pull like a super rare card while you're up there and stuff? And I didn't. It was like some common, like a non-holographic rare card. I would have like literally stopped the show and set it down gently. Ask for a sleep. I would have asked for a sleep. Like, excuse me, production. Is I need a sleeve real quick. Or I would get like my family was there and I would have them be like, come, come here now, come here now. And then have them like slowly put it in the sleeve. Got to get that PSA 10. Got to get that Beckett Black Label 10. I would do that. I would literally stop the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Creator Economics, episode six. And like we told you on episode five, we were coming at you with a guest. And I'm gonna introduce our guest. Most of you probably know who he is already, but he is a Pokemon enthusiast, ex-Ninja Warrior, 1.1 million subscribers with 181 million. That is right, million views across his YouTube channel. And also, this is probably the most interesting thing, uh, he was once the voice actor for One Piece. We're not probably going to get into that too much today, although I'm probably going to ask you a few questions about that. Leon Hart, thanks for joining us. Hey, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to get started with something that your YouTube channel is surrounded around, and that is Pokemon. And this is something that we, we've seen on YouTube. Uh, obviously, it's been there a long time, but it's kind of jumped into prominence with Logan Paul getting a number one trending video, and we're seeing a lot of other creators. I think I saw Mini Minter uh, and some other guys from the Sidemen do an unboxing yesterday. So first question I kind of wanted to get into is like, how, how did you get started, and when did you start collecting Pokemon cards? So I originally started collecting back when the initial hype was out, 1999, and you know I played the original Pokemon Red wow. and Blue games, and so, uh, you know, I eventually grew out of it, but then found my collection, I believe in like 2015 or 14, when I had started my YouTube channel, uh, I did a video on showcasing my old collection. The cards weren't in good condition. And from then on, I started collecting the older vintage sets, as well as diving into the newer sets leading up to the current set right now. So as you look at Pokemon cards right now, what would you say would be classified as the hardest card for a collector to get a hold of? And it, it's probably not a Charizard. It's probably something else. Like, what, what would you say is that card? So most people would say the rarest card in the world is a Pikachu Illustrator card, which were originally given out back in the late 90s when the game first started, uh, especially in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe there was only maybe 60 of them that were originally given out. And now um, I think there's less than maybe 20 that are in the world. And most of them are not even in good condition. And I believe there's just one PSA 10, which is the grading service that grades the card in the world. And that one probably would fetch close to a million dollars at this point. So definitely the Pikachu Illustrator card. So wow. you say PSA. So let, let's back up a little bit. How, how are cards actually you know, graded. And I'm guessing most people that are listening to this probably have never went through the process of getting a Pokemon card graded. Um, so I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. And I know PSA is one of the biggest players in this space. Yeah. So there's professional sports authenticators or PSA or Beckett grading services or BGS, which is located uh, in Dallas, Texas. And those are two of the biggest grading companies for Pokemon cards and specifically for PSA. Uh, and BGS as well, when they look at when they're grading a card, and mind you, the process right now is just there's tons and tons of people that have been submitting cards. Uh, but specifically when they look at a card, they look at four different categories. Uh, the surface of the card for any scratches, 
print lines and print lines being printed on the card when the cards were originally produced by the factory. Those can be even on fresh packs that you open up. Um, then you look to the corners to see if there's any whitening on the specific corners of the cards and even opening up fresh packs. You always got to look out for the corners and then edges of the cards as well that go on the top and all sides. Uh, look up for that category. And then finally is the centering of the card. So when you're looking at the front, there's the yellow border of a Pokemon card and the back is a blue border. Both of those most of the time aren't perfect centering wise, which is how congruent they are on each side. So looking at all four of those categories, you have to pass all of those to get the highly coveted PSA 10 or for Beckett, the highly, highly coveted black label Beckett 10. So we're, uh, we're both in Dallas. So, and if people are watching the video, they're going to be able to see this. If you guys are listening to audio on Apple or Spotify, you won't. So I actually, uh, <laughs> opened a, I have a Charizard. It's a base set Charizard. This was from third grade. I opened this card. It sat in a box until about two years ago, in my parents' basement. I had a whole binder of Pokemon cards, as I'm sure a lot of people do. They probably have forgotten about their Pokemon cards. They've sat in a box. They're sitting under the bed. About two years ago, and I actually started watching a few of your videos and a few other videos on YouTube, I was like, wait a second. I actually have Pokemon cards. I need to go look for my cards. And so I had my parents ship my cards out to Dallas, and lo and behold, there was a Charizard sitting in there. You know, I was like a sweaty third grader, so it's not in the best condition. Um, but I'm going to, you know, we're both in Dallas. I'm going to have to actually get you to grade this. I want to send it to Beckett's. I'm afraid it's going to come back with like a four out of 10. Uh, and then I'm going to be really upset. How much money do you think to this, to this point you've spent on Pokemon cards? It's funny that you asked that because before I got on this uh, podcast, I was thinking to myself, uh, how much have I spent just within the year 2020? And I don't think, hopefully my wife can't hear me right now, but I think it's probably been my whole like venture, not just 2020, uh, probably maybe over ha like half a million dollars at least uh, wow. to close to a million dollars, like somewhere in there. Honestly, I've been opening up packs, uh, first edition boxes left and right. So uh, all on my own dime too. So for my personal collection, so uh, probably close to a million at this point. That, that's awesome. We talk a lot about how certain, like, I don't know, Mr. Beast is probably the best example of like a creator who reinvests in, in their content. And I think it's awesome. Like, I, I think there's a lot of people uh, that aren't truly reinvesting. I think for, for you, it makes a ton of sense. And so I think it actually makes sense to continue to scale and, and, and continue to buy more of these packs. It, it has to be uh, a little bit challenging because it's like a double-edged sword as, as more YouTubers and creators and celebrities start to move into the space. Like these cases and, and like cards individually are just going up in value. How do you think like just the overall ecosystem has affected or like, I don't know, the past 24 months, it feels like there's been a real boom and maybe the last, I don't know, let's say a uh, year or, or six months, we've really seen it, it start to pick up. How do you think everything is uh, affecting the market today because it certainly feels like uh, there's more attention today than, than maybe ever before. Well, uh, just specifically going on what you initially said as, bar, as far as like reinvesting my resources into my own channel, that's basically what it's been about is basically doing the absolute craziest openings. I've been opening up first edition basic packs this entire year uh, just for my own collection when those are going for over $10,000 because those were heavy packs, which means there's actually guaranteed holographic on the inside most likely. And uh, it's all about keeping it going. And thankfully, part of that close to a million dollars spent is 
tons and tons of packs and boxes. So I do have lots of inventory on my end. Um, but as far as how things have been going, literally you can go back two weeks and a base set unlimited booster box was sitting at around $10,000 is now going for over $35,000. I'm calling it the Logan Paul effect. <laughs> and um, for me, I have several unlimited base set boxes. So it's kind of like, yay, for investment purposes, I can just sit here, do nothing, go sit in the lawn, do nothing. And I'll be making money that way. But at the same time, uh, from someone that is, you know, I'm all about chances for not just myself, but other people to open up these boxes and, you know, for a casual collector, I guess you can say it's, it is making it very, very almost impossible to get a hold of the original base sets. Um, but don't get me started on the next sets and the next sets. Cause those are going to be getting hit next. So you said the, the Logan Paul, the Logan Paul effect. I think everyone saw his video. I, I believe he paid $220,000 for a first edition booster set. What, what do you think these are actually worth? Because I, I think I, I literally just saw one sell the other day for $350,000. So the value of these first edition booster sets uh, continues to climb, but also I, I don't believe Pokemon is ever gonna make any more of these. So there, there's also probably not a lot left. What, what do you think a first edition booster box is actually worth? I, I think it's worth probably close to half a million at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all about supply and demand. Really, there's, I, I can probably list on my hand people that currently own a box and people that opened up the box within the past uh, year or so. And there was a recent sale, or at least I believe it's actually still going to be officially taking place soon for a first edition base set box going for $375,000, which will be uh, public wise, the most that was spent because uh, Logan spent $200,000. And then Logic uh, spent $226,000 on a just one card, a first edition base set 10 card. And so every single day at this point, there is some new news of something that was bought and is now setting the market for that specific. And they're not, even if they do print them again, which I don't think they will, Pokemon wise, it doesn't matter because those are the original, original first edition ones. Mm. And they're, you know, who knows how many are actually left in the world. So for someone that has, and I'm sure a lot of people have a base set Charizard, base set Blastoise, not first edition, not Shadowless. Like what, what are those cards uh, actually worth? PSA 9, PSA 8, like what, what are these cards actually going for right now? Well, let me tell you just how crazy things are going. Because <laughs> not only are now a regular Charizard base set unlimited card, for instance, one that you found you know, yourself, mm -hmm. no matter the condition, you get that bad boy graded and now it, th that one potentially, I think I saw like a 10 was going for like over $10,000 of a, just a regular unlimited one. Um, but it's crazy because one of the more recent sets called Evolutions TCG, which was a reprint of the original base set to celebrate Pokemon's 20th anniversary in 2016, those boxes, like you couldn't give those away. No one would take those. Now, because you can buy uh, and pull a potentially reprint of an original base set Charizard holographic, those PSA 10 wise evolution base set Charizard card are now going for like $6,000. And that's a more recent set. Wow. So do you think that as a, if, if you're a collector sitting in this position, or if you're me who just found a binder full of Pokemon cards with say 50 to 60 hollows, is it time to sell or is it time to hold? Hold. 
I know people are just like, oh, it can come down or it's just hype right now with everything going on. Like I would sell. If you don't, honestly, if you don't need the money, hold on to it. It's only gonna go up. These are the, these are the only ones there are. And you're holding on to them. The market's just gonna keep on appreciating for these things. At worst, at worst is it would just plateau off because there's always going to be somebody else that wants these cards there's always going to be a new type of age group that has the income to now go spend to get that nostalgic fix of owning that rare charizard card blastoise card and you know let's talk about pokemon just real quick it's the highest grossing media franchise in the entire world i think it was like four billion dollars a year and they're about to celebrate their 25th anniversary next year yep it's only gonna get bigger yeah i i think if you it's funny. There, I, I saw someone talk about this where it was like Pikachu and Charizard and, and these names and characters are actually like far more recognizable than, you know, someone like Odell Beckham or, or like a random athlete that uh, if you think about sports cards and what's happening in that world, it's like, OK, like everyone knows who Pikachu and Charizard are at, at the very least. And so it makes sense that, that uh, certain cards, especially Charizard right now, is is, is blowing up. And I, I, I tend to agree. It, it, it feels like especially uh for these really old ones where it's like okay we know that there's only a certain amount left and and uh it's clear that there isn't just new ones popping up all the time but i guess that leads into like if if someone were to try and get into this market today i imagine uh over the past six months there's probably been a huge boom of of new people trying to get in and be like oh i need to like try and get a charizard again like where do they even go like how do they figure out what is fake or or not and is it just ebay right now or like what would your biggest advice, I guess, be to someone who's trying to start out and, and start collecting? Well, it kind of goes to what I was saying earlier as far as now, since basically most people are priced out of getting the original, at least for first edition purposes, but even now that unlimited version of the original Charizard holographic card, they're moving to more or what was more affordable sets like that Evolutions TCG set, which was a reprint of the base set that came out in 2016. And now the prices for those Charizards are starting to go up as well because they can't get those original cards. eBay is kind of the Wild West at the moment. I mean, you'll see listings that people just list stuff just to see if they can get people to bite. And unfortunately, people are actually biting on some of these prices that don't know otherwise. Um, but, but yeah, it's just kind of like the wild west. Of course you can go on Facebook marketplace. There's different Pokemon card buy and sell groups that people will be way more educated and give you information as well. So I joined some of the more populated ones on there. Um, and then of course you can try to go on Instagram as well. And there's lots of amazing creators too. What, so what started first, your YouTube career or your Pokemon collecting career? Because I, I was scrolling back a couple of years in your content and you've actually, You've been opening Pokemon cards for a long time, or at least creating content around the Poke universe, I'll call it. Uh, what, what came first? So I was born in 1987, 33 years old, and video games were a large part of my childhood, specifically Sega Genesis, Nintendo 64, PlayStation 1, 2. And so my channel was actually all about retro video game nostalgia in those like corny uh, top 10 lists. And so I initially was doing top 10 best Nintendo 64 games, top 10 best Valentine's Day couples in video games. You know, those weird videos, they weren't really taken off too much, but I really did enjoy them. It wasn't until I had gone to my parents' place and found my old collection uh, soon after, I believe it's like, like early 2015, 
that I finally did that first video on showcasing that collection. And then from then on, it was a combo of both Let's Plays and video games and those types of videos to where it eventually just was niched down all about uh, Pokemon cards. Do you, do you collect anything else? Like just from that retro era of, of video games, like do you collect any of those things as well? I imagine like if you had a Sega Genesis right now and, and like uh, those are like those type of games, I, I imagine it'd be pretty awesome. Well, unfortunately, I only have about one storage room in my house that I can house enough stuff. And I don't have all my Pokemon collectibles. Like my most stuff here is not even at my house. It's in a secure location. So I have that place to store some stuff, but I'm like, nah, I got to, concentrate on just one type of topic mm -hmm. and i do have like the original pokemon red and blue games from the game boy system like they're sealed and graded by company um but i told myself these are the only ones because you don't know how bad i want to go start collecting uh sealed nintendo 64 games but i have to stop myself so you'll you'll see random trinkets and stuff in my studio and my other storage from that video game world but for the most part it's strictly pokemon cards that's awesome. Yeah, I saw you moving to. You were posting about like Yu-Gi-Oh the other day, and I was like, "Oh man, like you, you're it, that's a natural extension as well." <laughs> well, it, it, just quickly on the Yu-Gi-Oh stuff. So I'm I'm starting to dab into the Yu-Gi-Oh verse world. Uh, specifically, uh, one I collected it and played it when I was younger. Not even close to as much as Pokemon, but just a little tip for everybody: start getting into Yu-Gi-Oh because really it's, get it's gonna. It's only a matter of time, and with how things are going, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty big. But don't get me wrong, Pokemon's a much bigger brand than Yu-Gi-Oh is. But as far as for collecting in the collecting world, I just get ready for Yu-Gi-Oh in the near future. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm always you know, and I look at your YouTube channel, and and obviously views are up considerably with everything going on uh, in Pokemon. What what does your team look like? Is it just a part time editor? Do you make your own thumbnails? Like what well, what's that all look like? Yeah, I got my team here actually. So here's one person right here. Hi everybody, <laughs> and then here is my editor. Hi everybody. So basically, oh, wow. I'm a one man team. It wasn't until maybe three weeks ago I finally put some trust in an editor and I've been very slowly uh, trying to test them out. But I do everything. Marketing, sponsorships, brainstorming videos, title, thumbnails, uh, recording, <laughs> everything. And I know it's pretty crazy. You think I'd have a bigger team. So if you're out there, anybody. <laughs> Yeah, I, you help say it's it. crazy, um, but it's kind of how everyone starts, right? Like when I when I met Mr. Beast, it was him and Chris and Ethan, an editor, mm -hmm. um, to now 50 plus employees. I met Preston, it was just him and an editor. Mm -hmm. um, so same situation, right? Usually the editor's the first piece, right? and it's the hardest piece for every single YouTuber to like give up the editing because yes. you guys are so particular about your editing style. Right. Uh, so try, I've been down this road so many times. Uh, and I just remember Beast, like when I was trying to talk him into getting more editors, he's like, no one will ever be able to edit videos like I want them to edit. I only understand my editing. Exactly, exactly. I was like, I do the inside jokes and stuff. How are they gonna get this? But it's magical. My, mm -hmm. my wife is like, just, just trust it. Keep going with this one. And I did. And I'm really slowly getting close to uh, you know, him you know, full time, which would be amazing. So I can you know, actually concentrate on other projects and improving. How much time during the day is spent on YouTube right now? Since it's just you, you just got an editor. Like, what, what's your typical day look like? Well, these days have been insane. I, I can't tell you how many times I wake up in the morning and there's some new 
big influencer or celebrity that's wanting to get into the Pokemon curl, uh, world right now. And honestly, it's awesome because it's like, what am I going to, it's Christmas every single morning. Who are you going to wake up to? Um, or people just finding their old collections and wanting to know how much their old collections are worth. But um, so for me, I just would feel guilty if I didn't do this. I literally spend maybe way too much time responding to comments, emails from subscribers, because that's just how I was when I first started the channel. And that's how I am still to this day. So you'll find me 24 seven responding to subscribers and and everything but at the same time a typical day is waking up i we have a new puppy mini golden doodle his name is archie and have to wake up very early for him i'll go in take care of emails respond to emails from the night before uh in the morning i'll immediately start editing a video uh that i was done from the previous day and then i'll go into brainstorming uh coming up with ideas for the next day's video uh, i'll record those videos usually midday um, then I start editing for the rest of the day, basically, along with constant uh, notifications on all social media platforms, responding to those and emails from different business stuff and everything. And it goes basically to like 24-7, basically. I, I don't think I, I haven't taken a break. I will say this, and other creators can relate, and entrepreneurs too. I don't think I've actually taken a day off in I can't tell you how many years which may be making me go crazy, but I love it. I'm passionate about it. So, you know, what can I say? Wow. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's a insane amount of work. And I, I mean, it's awesome that it's paying off. I guess it's funny when you, I've watched like your first video and I know, I know you reference your first video on YouTube uh, quite a bit, like in past interviews, but I, I think it's just so interesting because it feels like you've really stayed true or like core, like that is who you are as a human. And um, I remember you like saying how you've always wanted to like give more uh, charity and like philanthropic work. And, and you were inspired by a lot of that when you used to watch YouTube back in the day. It seems like you've really stepped that up now. I, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to just tell people about what you're, you're doing in that world. And uh, I think it's, it's amazing. Well, thank you. Um, so basically every single year, um, I try to do a big event involving Pokemon cards and charity specifically for mental health awareness. And currently I'm raising money and funds for the National Alliance on uh, Mental Illness or NAMI. And last year I did something where I opened up every single Pokemon pack ever released from the original base set all the way to the newest set. And I gave all of those cards away in hopes of getting people to donate and reach out to NAMI if they need help. And last year raised $69,000 in uh, like a month or two. I'm proud to say this year, uh, probably by the time, you know, uh, this is recording, uh, about to hit $300,000 raised. And I think it's been maybe a month and a half. And so, um, but it's all, it's been about that ever since day one. Like you said, my original video is about giving back, giving back to the community, giving back to different organizations, people in need. And uh, I'm going to always do that every single year, multiple times a year. Uh, I will be utilizing my power as an influencer to give back. And right now, specifically for NAMI. That's incredible. Wow. I mean, that, that that's truly awesome. And, and, and I think it's, uh, it's really awesome that like you've tied it in between the two where you're doing these like giveaways and uh, I forget what some of the perks were for this year, but it, it's, it's awesome that you're doing that. And um, I think it, especially now, like it might even be a steal, right? Like if they donate, like depending on what it, those perks are, it, it it's is probably a steal awesome. right now. I will say it, cause it's $10 and this is nothing goes through me. It's on Nami's official, like their website. You're getting every single card that I pull from every single pack. I'm talking the original base set Skyridge, uh, which is another super rare set, everything. And then 
I opened up an original base set two box, which is valued at around $8,000 at the time I opened it. And then, oh, I opened up another first edition Gym Heroes box. And all these boxes were from back in 1999, the year 2000. Gym Heroes box was $11,000 when I opened it. It's now probably almost double that with how the market is. And all of the cards from all of those boxes, my personal collection, going to y'all. That's what it's about. So that's what you can get. Just that. And there's, there's great at cards too, but I'm, I'm done talking about it. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I've Thank loved you. watching how creators have leaned in to more of like this digital philanthropy world and, and understanding that their platform can achieve so much more than just views. Mm -hmm. I think some creators get lost in that and they just continually chase views all the time, mm -hmm. right? It's all about views, views, views. And it's been really rewarding, you know, especially me and where I sit in the industry to see a lot of these creators now say like, okay, we can do a lot more with our platforms, whether it's, you know, for St. Jude's or whether, mm -hmm. you know, it's for Team Trees, like what Jimmy did and raised $22 million. And so I applaud you for that. Um, that's something that, you know, I've had a lot of you know, fun just sitting, sitting here and watching all these charitable initiatives. We have a lot of clients that do it. Uh, I'm glad you're using, you know, especially Pokemon and bringing that into this universe too. So if there's any way we can help, uh, I'm sure a lot of our creators as well love Pokemon cards. They're in this universe. Uh, they're now getting a chance to kind of geek out, grab their Pokemon cards from under their bed, uh, try and figure out if they have anything worth of value. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm so glad that, that we can talk about this a little bit because it, it is awesome seeing all the digital philanthropy in this ecosystem. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So back, I, I do have a, a YouTube question I want to go back to. And I think, you know, you talked about editing a little bit. I think the second hardest thing for a creator is bringing someone in to help with creative and creative seems like as you get down the road with hundreds and hundreds of videos, it's always more difficult to one-up yourself. Have mm -hmm. you found that to be a roadblock for you to be like, I've done so much on my channel. Like what, what do I do to like continually one-up myself so people are interested in clicking on my videos? Has that, has that become something that you've struggled with? So you would think yes, but I think it's how I am as a competitive person and how I just love the Pokemon world. I'm always trying to <clears throat> not beat other people, but it's like you said, I'm trying to one-up myself, but doing it in just a really, really creative way, whether it be opening up the absolute rarest packs in the world that I was doing recently, or going to a store like Costco, and I think I bought who knows how many thousands or something of dollars of stuff, and then I was donating those to the uh, Children's Medical Hospital in Plano. Um, but just taking everybody along for the ride. So I honestly, like, I'm bringing this all up because I don't, you would think it would be so dip. Like, well, how can you get better than opening up the rarest packs in the world? Mm -hmm. Well, it's opening up the rarest packs with another personality, with a friend, with another person that has the same drive as you or just a random family member. It's just, there's so many options out there. And it, it just involves about, you know, just taking a few moments and brainstorming, which is what I do on a daily basis. Do so you, honestly, it really hasn't been that difficult. Have you, do, are, do you, so you don't feel like you're getting creative fatigue. Um, you've never kind of hit that wall and been like, man, I'm just really struggling to come up with consistent ideas for my channel. And maybe that's something you haven't hit yet. I just know for a lot of YouTubers that I meet that have been at this for six, seven years, that's like the biggest roadblock that I think they hit. And they, they call it like now creator burnout, I guess right. is a, a word that we see in the media is like a creator just can no longer sustain uh, their channel and they feel burnt out. 
Um, and if you haven't hit that point, that's amazing. Um, cause I just, it is like, I just find a lot of creators. That's, that's like the one thing after editing and having someone make thumbnails where they really just struggle to push through. So going on that, I think what has made me be able to surpass these burnouts, because don't get me wrong, it is extremely uh, stressful um, in, at certain times uh, for certain reasons. However, instead of complaining, I see how can I improve myself and what can I do to improve this situation and one upping myself uh, to avoid this burnout is basically just taking a step back, seeing what I can do to improve. So I used to do seven videos a week. I went down to five videos a week. I used to do five videos a week. I'm now down, which is still crazy to be honest, uh, four videos a week and they're each 20 to 30 minutes long. And they're each involving uh, most of the time, uh, who knows what the budget is for each of these. I mean, sometimes the budget is like $50,000 for a video or something like that. It's, it's insane. And, but that's kind of what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm finding ways, the editor finally, or toning down the videos to stop this burnout as I see it approaching. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't happened yet, which uh, it hasn't gotten to that point yet because I'm trying to be a step ahead of it. Yeah. Do you think that, and, and we haven't talked about it too much, but you, before going into YouTube full time, I, I know you were a lawyer and, and, and spent time in that world. Do you think maybe like going from working a full time job and, and maybe doing a, a slower transition into the full time YouTube part, like gave you a little bit different perspective than maybe someone who's I don't, just going straight into YouTube right after high school and maybe hasn't worked? Uh, at like a law firm or, or experience that side of the world. Like, how, how do you think that has shaped your experience as a creator? Uh, I think that's uh, an excellent point because I ha I, I absolutely have to say that is absolutely how I think I've been as successful for this long is because I started my YouTube channel in 2004, November of 2014. So, and I'm 33 years old now. So I, at that point, I pretty much already knew who I was as a person. I've gone through a career path and that was being an attorney and that slowness from being an attorney, which, which by the way, at that time I was doing seven videos a week, which I still have no idea how I would do that. Um, I did, I was able to ease into it by not going, you know, all in spending this much and this much. It was a gradual process to where I was able to learn by mistakes, learn from this and this. To where eventually I made a very, very calculated risk um, that, you know, fortunately for now paid off of going full time doing YouTube and content creation in September of 2017. And was there a specific, I guess, for you, was there a specific inflection point that led to that decision? Or like, I guess, two, that can be two separate questions. Like, one is like, when did you feel like you made it? Or like, you're like, oh my gosh, I made the right decision. And like, two, when did you actually know? Uh, that you were going to like go into this full time? Like, where were you at in terms of subs at, at that time? Um, as far as like subscribers, I think I was just in the maybe mid hundred thousands. And wow. it was a matter of making sure I have various revenue streams. So not just relying on YouTube AdSense. You know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, sponsorship deals. I do voice acting, acting. <laughs> I was an attorney, so I was able to save up some that way too. Um. So from there, it was convincing the wife and family with bar charts and everything. <laughs> Here is why this is actually the best way to do it for me. And uh, 
it didn't, it, you know, it was a slow process of convincing them because at that point I was already convinced once I found out that I have enough, you know, in the nest egg, I have enough revenue streams where I can partake in this. But it wasn't like a lot, a lot, but it was enough to where I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to be the most happiest and most successful if I dive 100% into content creation full time. And it paid off. That's amazing. Yeah, I think most people, most people are kind of on that edge that you talked about earlier where they're po- they think that they have to post a video a day, right? And it's, it's actually quality of videos over quantity of videos. And, and YouTube has actually changed a little bit. And maybe in the past, the algorithm did reward daily content. Right. And so I understand why people were doing it. But I still continue to see creators pumping out daily videos. And the quality of those videos is just not sustainable for most people to make good videos every single day. Some of them can do it, most can't. And so one thing that I've seen, at least in the last few years, is creators scaling back content. They realize that they're better off posting one video a week that gets a million views than posting seven videos a week that all get 100K, right? And so it's, it's, it's good to finally see creators understanding that, that you know, YouTube doesn't actually reward daily content. They reward good videos. They reward good videos that people click on, that people watch a lot of, and then in turn, those videos get suggested. Uh, what, what do you think you would tell a creator who is you know, kind of on that grind of like posting a ton of videos, trying to get as many things out? Um, what, what advice would you probably give that creator in terms of like, how do, how do you scale that back? Like what made you think about going from seven videos a week to four? Was it just a bandwidth issue? Uh, no. So as far as going to seven, uh, well, seven to five to eventual four, it was actually just exactly what you were saying is quality over quantity because I was doing seven videos. They're around maybe 11 minutes to 20 minutes long, nowhere near the quality as they are now. So I just wanted to invest into how can I, like, I mean, I say this to most people, like, how do you do this many videos? Or like, how did you do that? And it's like, now it's like, I want every video that you come to, to be a playoff game, a football game on the weekend, where it's not like the NBA or baseball, where there's a game every single day. So you're like, it's okay if I don't tune in. This is like, no, Leonard's posting at this time, same time, mm-hmm. every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, 1 p.m. Central. And that is when you know, I can post <laughs> a video, like that subtle, like throw in there. Uh, but that's, that's, you know, but I, I say that because consistency is actually really, really big. And mm-hmm. that's why I pick those specific days, those specific times, because you know, I'm going to post on those days. That's when that playoff game, that football game is going to be and the quality for those just outweighs quantity in trying to come out with as many videos, because as you said, the algorithm right now absolutely favors uh, click through rate, then actual watch time, and then viewer experience overall with a certain video. And if you put your heart into a video, if you look into a certain niche uh, or topic that you wanna do and find out how can you make yourself unique in a already perhaps saturated market, because even if it's market is saturated, you can still find a way. It may be tough, but I promise you once you find the way, it will be absolutely worth it. Do you, do you pay attention to your data? Do you log into the dashboard every time you post a video? Do you look at your analytics? Or are you pretty hands-off when it comes to that? So basically, the fastest hour in the world for Leonhardt is when I post a video because I monitor how many views and everything I get within the first 15 minutes, not because I'm trying to be like, yeah, this is amazing, I'm the best, this many views. It's because I like seeing what my audience likes to watch. Mm -hmm. I see 
if they don't click on this as much, then I'm like, is it the title? Is it the thumbnail? Or like, what's going, if they just don't like this topic as much. So I noticed that because I'll, I watch every single time I post that video, first 15 minutes, I see how many views and how much engagement, likes, dislikes, anything, comments, a video does, click through rate, um, 30 minutes, every 15 minutes, basically, uh, for that final hour, then I can finally kind of like relax just a little. And then I'll check in to where I think it's like a couple hours after that, it updates like watch time, average view duration, and uh, click through rate. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, basically, I'm monitoring it 24 seven, as far as how they do. But that's where it is. The analytics don't lie. Data doesn't lie, I guess is the word. Are you, so are, are you making multiple thumbnails? You said you check the video first 15 minutes. So say that video comes out, it's 10 out of 10. Uh, for those people that don't have YouTube channels, uh, your, your videos are actually graded on that's past 10 uploads. And so if you upload a video and it's like your video's 10 out of 10, you're, you're just sunk and you're like, I just uploaded yeah. a terrible video. So are, do you, in that circumstance, and you're, say the video's 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, do you have a thumbnail or an alternate title ready to go? And then are you switching those out? So for the most part, I don't do that. because. But I, I suggest to everybody out there, uh, A, B, test your videos before you actually post, if possible. I don't really do that just because I know what my audience at this point likes with the title and thumbnail. I've kind of stuck to that. Whether it not be a hit right off the bat, I do know that search will pick it up. And for people that aren't subscribed, and I'll be, I won't go into all the stuff about click-through rate for people that aren't subscribed and stuff, uh, I know that the title and thumbnail will hit at least those people, even if my initial audience isn't too into it. Because uh, you know I've always looked at the data and see how it goes. Um, it's a very rare occasion where I'll actually uh, change the thumbnail or title specifically. If anything, I would change the thumbnail, and I usually do have a backup just in case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you almost have to wait and see how the video does once it starts getting suggested, as mm -hmm. opposed to, I think people uh, who watch for that first 15 minutes, 30 minutes, make an impulse decision. They're like, oh my God, my audience hates it. And they change the thumbnail right away without actually giving the video a chance to succeed. Whereas like, you know, you should probably let it sit there for six, seven, eight hours before you even think about changing it because you want the video to actually get recommended and then see how it's performing once it gets recommended. Because um, a lot of times, like I will see a 10 out of 10 video get uploaded and they check back in two days and it's one out of 10. Um, and so uh, hopefully, you know, a lot of YouTubers that are listening uh, understand that. Don't change, don't think you always need to change your thumbnail and title 15 minutes after you upload that video because you just don't think it's performing very well. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many times there's been a nine or an eight out of 10 video or that 10 out of 10 video where I do what you just said. I just left, mm -hmm. I leave it. And honestly, for uh, creators out there, Sometimes just let it go. Uh, I, I've had a video go crazy two weeks after I had posted, not just one video, it's been a lot of videos that you started off poorly. Two weeks after, you know, they started getting suggested. You never know when. You know, you try to by looking at the data and the analytics, but sometimes you, you just win that YouTube lottery for some of those bad performing videos at the beginning and then randomly it something clicks with it. Are, are there any creators that you watch? I guess like I, I know you uh, like you have, I have to imagine there's some inspiration when you first got into YouTube, but like, are there any creators that you still watch actively? And, and yeah, like, how, how do you think about that as a creative outlet and getting inspiration as well? Uh, well, first off, there's a lot of amazing creators that are doing Pokemon card openings, but I can only take watching and opening Pokemon cards so, so much. So a massive way to just kind of, when I can try to take a little bit of a break during the day is watching Markiplier and Jacksepticeye. 
who uh, obviously have nothing to do with Pokemon and Pokemon cards. They're just massive Let's Play and gaming channels. So I'll actually just watch some of those. And uh, that's basically all I have time for. It's like maybe one of their videos, if, even if I want to watch that specific video that day, because usually there's like a backlog. But uh, And I was originally inspired by both of them, not just for their uh, how they are, but their charitable efforts as well. So one last thing I wanted to touch on, and this is something that Blake and I kind of dug up and, you know, it's American Ninja Warrior, right? What, what made you want to try out and actually, and what did the process look like training up to that day uh, that you took on the course? Uh, so basically I like throwing random, this is how crazy I am. I like throwing random challenges in my life just to kind of like, you know, spice things up. So I told myself, while watching American Ninja Warrior one evening with my wife, I go, hey, I want to be on that show. I, less than a year later, I got on the show. But it was started by me just walking into an actual Ninja Warrior gym, which there are several, thankfully, here in Dallas, Texas, that I just walked in there. They were, it was a random day. They were very, very receptive people that were there. And these were actual former people that were just on the previous season. Uh, I tell you what, I couldn't do any of the swinging or anything. It was like the most daunting and intimidating thing ever, but I stuck with it and kept on going with training to where I eventually created a tryout video, audition video for it, which, you know, naturally being a creator wasn't the most difficult thing to do. Uh, so they really enjoyed the audition video when they had, when they saw it, they actually had called me up being like, so we're not really supposed to do this, but... We liked your audition video, but you just need to change this one thing up just a little. And then we'll basically call you in a couple months when we call people and stuff. And I was like, wow, okay, awesome. And then from then on, Pokemon actually sponsored me when I was on the show as well to be the first person to ever open up Pokemon cards while I was on the stage. <laughs> uh, it was very, very uh, late, cold, and uh, a little embarrassing at the same time. But then again, I try to be like a trailblazer, uh, for the Pokemon world, like kind of like an ambassador for the Pokemon company and, uh, doing crazy stuff like that. I mean, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Would you ever do it again? Yeah, actually I was going to do it this, this season, but because of, uh, all the pandemic stuff going on, mm -hmm. um, they only had a select amount of people that they had that are you, most people that are like been on the show for a long time. And so I was like, yeah, I'll sit out this time. So I didn't want to really do it this time just because of everything going on. But yeah, you never know when things are hopefully better. See me open up another pack of cards up there once again. <laughs> Maybe hopefully I'll pull it up. is a, yeah, pull Charizard, a first edition Charizard. And that's what people ask me. They were like, what if you pull like a super rare card while you're up there and stuff? And I didn't. It was like some common, like mm -hmm. a non-holographic rare card. I would have like literally stopped the show and set it down gently ask for a sleeve i would ask for a sleeve like excuse me production is i need a sleeve real quick or i would get like my family was there and i would have them be like come here, come here now come here now and then have them like slowly put it in the sleeve gotta get that psa 10 gotta get that beckett black label 10 i would do that i would literally stop the show if it was an expensive car but we'll see i think Never people know. would lose their minds if you didn't do that and you and you pulled a nice car and they're like wait he just set it down and continued on without putting a sleeve on it yeah i got plenty of them in the background so, or the back so you definitely I, that's did. why i would just throw no no but seriously i would yeah people would go crazy and uh don't want to deal with that but honestly <laughs> i would want to keep it in good condition anyway <laughs> Well, we, uh, we appreciate you coming on. I, I would love to get you in the office. I know we're both in Dallas, Texas. I have Pokemon fanatics in the office that have thousands of, of cards and definitely a lot of first editions. So Very nice. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. We'll, we'll link your, your YouTube channel, your Instagram uh, down below. For those of you who haven't 
checked out his channel, go check it out. It's incredible. First edition cards all over the place. Uh, you'll get addicted, you'll fall down a rabbit hole, and all of a sudden you're gonna be looking at like, how do I grade Pokemon cards? Do I think this is a nine? Do I think this is an eight? I was totally fascinated. Uh, and I think I ended up watching your channel for like six hours. So we appreciate you coming on. Thank, Thank you so you. much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.